Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Well before Pam Taylor retired from her work as a math, technology, and computer applications community college teacher, she was involved with the No CAFOs work of the environmentally concerned citizens of South Central Michigan. Combining careful research and determined publicity, PAM, the organization and other groups like the Sierra Club, are working to make the region's air, water, and land habitable and flourishing. We're going to talk to Pam about the work in a moment, but first I wanted to start out with a snippet of a wonderful song by Tom Nielsen, which speaks about the quickly disappearing farm life, which Pam Taylor, I, and many others favor over factory farms. Tom Nielsen's song is Four Lane Highways and Mobile Homes, then on to Pam Taylor. Four o'clock in the afternoon, the border collies call. Martin's on his John Deere, Monty's yelling his caboose. Barn doors open up for Halsteins, each one knows her place. Cut your tail with dried manure, whisk across your face. Cut your tail with dried manure, whisk across your face. Music on the radio plays a country tune. Rhythm with the milking machines and sweeping with a broom. We put in hay till midnight so we could beat the rain. This farm is family, don't know no other name. This farm is family, don't know no other name. Then the government told us get big or get out. But butts and nicks and got no clue what farming's all about Wall Street brokers raise the interest rates to make some dough Banker with our mortgages, counting what we owe Banker with our mortgages, counting what we owe I watch our fields go to four-lane highways Pam, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. In a nice cool room instead of in the outside sweltering heat, 90 degrees is not my favorite. No. And do you blame it on anything in particular? In the mega sense, probably climate change. We're seeing a lot of things happening earlier and more extreme than over the years. But I'm less than 100 years old, so what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you probably have to live through, you know, a good 15,000 years before you even see the major ice age cycles. Pretty much. But I do see some, we definitely see some changes and and it affects a lot of things that are happening in the ecology around here. You know, I've had people argue with me, climate change deniers, if you will, not necessarily that the climate's not changing, but but what they've said is, that the climate is changing because it's always changing. That's If you look at the cycles of the Ice Age years, 
yeah, it goes up and down. And in, I don't know, the 1600s, I think there was a mini ice age and so on. I know that they're missing a lot of the facts because even though what they're saying is true, having seen enough of the graphs of the change and the correlations, and correlations, mind you, are not proof, but they are an indication of something you should check in to. So uh, anyway, the fact that we have a warm day here today does not mean that there's climate change, but the fact that there is all this weather disruption and that there's an overall global change, that is a strong indicator that anthropomorphic climate change is happening. Were you into climate change issues before CAFOs, or how did that come along? Oh, no, no, no. I tend to try to be very local. Because of the, the community where I live and, and, and um, my own personal experiences, I don't think I'm ever going to win a war about the philosophy of climate change with anybody. I mean, and I don't really want to do that. But what I would invite people to do is just look outside Think about how is this different from last year? What is it different? What do you see? What did you experience? Most of the people I know are farmers, and believe it or not, they keep really, really good records about the amount of rainfall, the temperature. They can tell you what date they planted that crop last year, what date they harvested. They're just fountains of data, and I think they really know. I mean, they, they know more than anybody because their livelihoods depend on weather and, and things like that, what, it, what is happening. So I think maybe we are kind of beyond that. I mean, in in the community where I live, I, everybody knows things are changing. They're planning earlier. The, our farm, in fact, our their renter was able to get three crops last year instead of like winter wheat and then the follow up crop, and that never happens. So people are adjusting, and they know. They know that the climate is changing. They know things are changing exactly. Could you say something about the specific locality where you live? I mean, you're with the environmentally concerned citizens of South Central Michigan. That's still a lot of expanse. How rural is your particular it's life? It's pretty rural. Our test grid where we operate in is about 36 square miles, and within that are 13 factory farms housing about 40,000 animals, producing about 199 million gallons of manure and waste each year. We are just over the state line north in western Lenawee County, like mid-Lenawee mid County, about half a county, over to the eastern edge of Hillsdale. We're really close to this area, part of the original Great Black Swamp, the, the geology and geography that exists in northwestern Ohio and western Lake Erie Basin is, is our, our same, we have the same conditions there, same crops. And have you always been rural? When you were teaching in schools, were you still living there and commuting? or how? I was, actually. My family came to rural Lenaway County in 1837 to farm, and relatives have been there since. They came in a group and owned farms there. The farm that my, my brother and my father and I currently own has been in our family since the early 1900s. I don't live there anymore. I didn't want to be an old lady in an old house. So it just got to be too much Three floors, five bedrooms, and a 100-year-old house got to be a bit much for me. So I moved to a smaller house. I moved to my working career. I, my grandparents lived on the farm, so my parents obviously couldn't live there. We lived in the little town of Blissfield. And I grew up, spent a lot of time at the farm helping, working, got sent out to do chores, things like that. My grandmother taught me how to garden, how to can, how to, how to do all those things. I was out on the farm as much as I could be there. 
Then later, my very first job was working as a secretary for a consulting engineer that designed wastewater and water treatment plants here in Toledo. Then I became a sales representative in their pipe division in Chicago, selling the sanitary systems, the sewer systems that run underneath the streets of any community, wastewater treatment plants, things like that. I moved back to this area. By that time, my grandmother had died, moved out to the farm, stayed there, continued to farm, decided I wanted a career change and became a teacher. And so for 21 years, I was a teacher in high school, and I taught business, math, and computer technology. While farming, I had a garden that was about an acre, raised sheep and chickens, occasional beef, cattle, occasional steer, no pigs. What do you got against pigs? Animal overload. (laughs) Chickens are good. Sheep are really easy to take care of. You don't have to do a lot with them. I spin and weave. I had a big dye garden with dye plants and things like that. I have seven chickens, or at least I had them until a neighborhood dog killed four of them just recently. But seven chickens produce a whole lot of poop. And you're talking about factory farms and how many tons, gallons, Mm -hmm. you know, metric crap loads they produce. Are pigs better or worse? I'm thinking that cows are actually worse. Definitely. The cows are the greatest environmental impact. The manure from one dairy cow, and this is dairying, this is milk production, this isn't beef cattle, is equivalent to over 20 people in a day. So the 146 factory farms in the western Lake Erie Basin, about 63% of the manure is produced by dairy cows. In Michigan, about 80% of the 272 CAFOs and however many million of animals we have, 20 million, 80% of the manure comes from dairy cows. And that's generally upper Midwest, what you find in Wisconsin, Minnesota. You need a lot of water, temperate climate. You say manure like it's a bad thing. Now, I think in years past, people have treated manure, you know, it goes on the fields, it's fertilizer, it's part of a cycle. Excellent, yes. When you get to a factory farm, I guess there's nowhere to cycle it. What are the laws currently about what you do with the oceans of manure that comes out of that? Well, you're right. I mean, in the days of smaller, more diversified farms where you might have a few animals on the farm, the tradition was you'd pasture them most of the year. You might put them in the barn during inclement weather or during the winter. And what you'd have at the end of the winter, you'd scrape all the stuff out of the barn, you'd put it in your manure pile, you'd have um, composted manure with straw in it and feed and other things, and it would be compost. You let it sit, and you put that on your fields, and yeah, I mean, our neighbor, in fact, my renter now used to have a pig farm, and he'd put his pig manure down twice a year, and it would smell bad for a couple of days. But it was good fertilizer. You didn't have the runoff because it was mostly dry. You didn't put too much on. Well, now animals, I mean, the, these farms hold so many animals. A typical dairy CAFO with 3,400 cows, that puts out the equivalent of manure, urine, and other things of 68,000 people a day. And that has to go somewhere. It happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And obviously, you can't have a manure pile the size of a university field house. You just can't have it sit there. So... They store it in lagoons to which they add water, fresh groundwater. That same 3,400 cow CAFO that I just talked about has two wells on its property, high-capacity wells that each pump a million gallons of groundwater a day. And why are they pumping in water? To store the manure because they have to, they store it in these huge giant cesspits called lagoons. 
not like Blue Lagoon. This would be a brown lagoon. And lots of them, they have to spray it through their irrigators. It has to be liquid for them to apply it. So it allows them to store it and then apply it through the equipment. And what happens, because we used to be a swamp here, and still would be, you'd be standing in knee-deep water and there would be snakes and all kinds of things floating around right now. In the early 1830s when people came here, they drained the Great Black Swamp. They dug ditches. They basically built underground sewer treatment, sewage treatment lines. If you think of your city sewer with all the pipes underneath it, underneath all the farm fields, are, there's a vast network of unmapped drain tile. Sixty percent of the farm fields from Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois have drain tile. In 2003, there was about 3 million miles of drain tile underlying these fields. In the area where I live and, and around here, there's as much as 100 miles of drain tile underneath the one-square-mile section of farm fields. And that's what happens is the manure goes right straight down into the field, right through the ground, into the perforations in the drain tile pipe, and then it shoots out to the surface water. And the more liquid the manure is, the faster it happens, sometimes within seconds. And you described historically the manure is put on a pile and it composts. So are they skipping the compost? Yeah, they don't, no composting. So you're putting it live onto the fields or wherever it's going? You're putting it into this big pit. And because it's wet still, slurry, you know, I don't want to get too technical here, but in order to fit it into their equipment so they can apply it, they have to liquefy it. So they add a bunch of water to it and it's like a pond, a manure pond. Because what you've learned to do is a lot of testing about CAFO's water effects. I mean, you're you're part of a network of people who do some amazing citizen responsibility in terms of caring for the whole area of Michigan that you live in. Did your technical expertise ramp up a whole lot, or was were there other people there already with that expertise? No, it's really unique because we all have a farming background. My experience as a math teacher and the statistics and the data collection and my experience with sewage treatment systems, which are basically drainage systems, right, collection systems, only without the treatment plant, it would be like they collect all the sewage from your city and they spray it on fields, untreated. That's what they're doing here. So my knowledge about that process, we are so blessed because we have a public health nurse We have two doctors on our staff. One of the doctors comes with us as part of our sampling team. We have someone who's a commercial videographer who takes our aerial photos when we go up in the sky. We just have people. We have a chemist. But I'm the data person. I'm the person that collects all the scientific stuff. So whenever we've needed something, we just seem to have somebody within our group who can do it. The one thing that most of us have that you can't replace is the farming background. Again, the the organization you're talking about, Environmentally Concerned Citizens of South Central Michigan, with a website of nocafos.org. This organization has been going for how long, and how big an organization is it? About 20 years. We probably have about 250 members on paper, and we probably could marshal up 40 or 50 for a letter-writing campaign or doing something like that. But the bulk of the work is done by about 10 people. We are not paid. We take individual donations, but nobody funds us but us. Our group was the very first CAFO fighting organization in the United States. Other groups came after us, like Grace in Washington. Our newest group affiliated with one of our partners is in Kiwani, Kiwani Cares, because there's huge problems there. They're not directly affiliated with us, but they're built upon the model that we had. 
when we first started, there was no way for to regulate manure pollution. There was no standard says that you violated our Clean Water Act or you polluted the water with your manure or with the things that come from manure because nobody had ever thought about it. So our group worked with um, the U.S. EPA and the state of Michigan to set up a protocol for the collection of evidence for livestock pollution, and that was adopted by the state of Michigan, and it's the, the protocol that every state uses now. We use the state labs. We've added DNA testing for microcystin, planktothrix, and cyanobacteria, and DNA testing to our protocol. We use the same labs that national agencies use to analyze our results. I need to be clear about this. Is this then state law that you're working under, or is it federal law? Clean Water Act. Is that implemented at the state level? or is Right. That... We are one of the states that the EPA has granted the state of Michigan the ability in its stead to write, administer, and enforce NPDES, NIPDES, National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, permits for CAFOs on behalf of the U.S. EPA. I think you said in your area there's some 13 CAFOs. There are 14. We monitor 13. And how long have these CAFOs been there? I, I think you're, I mean, your organization has been around for 20 years. They, that's when they first started coming in. We were set up in response to them. I'm trying to sort out what you're wrestling with and who's on your side and who you're not. Now, you're, you're gathering data. You're documenting what the effects of these CAFOs are, and they're horrendous and large. But then if you collect all this data, does that mean anything to your state government? Does it mean anything to the federal government? Does it mean anything to the courts? What's your recourse? That is a great question. Why do we do what we do? What we do is we, like I said, we like to stay local. Because the political climate has always been in favor of allowing these factory farms, we're pretty limited in what we can do, and that changes from time to time. What we do is we collect the data. We test if let's here's a hypothetical situation. Someone would call me and say, "Pam, I think there's manure coming off of this field. I'm not sure. Would you come and take a look at it?" Now, the logical thing to say would be, "Why don't you do it and report it?" But people are afraid. There are consequences. People have lost jobs. We've been harassed. One of my co-volunteers, the window of her granddaughter's bedroom was shot out while her win- while her granddaughter was sleeping in it. I've been chased. I've had to have the State police come and rescue me. We've had dead animals with their throats slit put in our cars and porches. I've had my mailbox blown up. People would lose jobs. I mean, they'd lose their jobs. So we go out and we do the test. If we find something, we report the results to Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality, MDEQ, and they will enforce the clean water permit. People sometimes mistakenly think that there's some state agency that will drive around and police these things, you know, like a cop sitting in a corner to catch you speeding. If citizens don't complain, there are never any consequences. And if you don't provide evidence, they don't ever come out and investigate. Is that an effect of the law or is it the effect of the implementation? You know, we don't want to see it, so therefore we close our eyes, even though the law says we're supposed to do this. I would say that's very accurate, and that depends on the politics happening in the state, which is why we don't pay really much attention to that. Even if I knew the state were coming out to investigate a pollution event or or a discharge, I would still take my own samples. I would be right there, and as the minute they left, I would take my own samples and have them analyzed. And I I need to say that in 20 years, we've obtained over 4,700 violations of the Clean Water Act citations against farms. And every single one of those meant that that farm had to stop doing something that was hurting a neighbor or somebody else. 
does that mean that instead of having 14 CAFOs there, you might have had 27 yes. because? Yes. Would say- I was, we were at a, a meeting not too long ago, and Michigan's building several new milk processing plants, and they just put in a new pork processing plant. And I was concerned about that because if you saw Washington Post today, we have too much cheese. The government subsidized milk production and feed production, and too much cheese is often a problem. Many of our CAFOs are dumping milk, literally, but yet we're subsidizing more, yet, yet more production. So I was asking about that, and, and an MDQ staffer turned to me and he said, Pam, don't worry, no new CAFOs are going to come to your area. And, you know, I, initially I was relieved, and I was, I, so then I asked, why are they coming anywhere? I mean, why are they being put in anywhere? Because you don't have a watchdog there. You don't have someone who's paying it. We've got a bad situation in Wisconsin. Yes, you do. Part of the an even worse turn of the situation happened after the 2010 election. Mm-hmm. I have some friends, uh, some who are Quakers, and actually some who are relatives who work for the DNR, and they were ordered not to enforce the law. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that happen in Michigan as well? It happened in Michigan. It, every now and then it happens. It's a little better since the Flint situation. But one of the reasons we take our tests, we use the same labs they use, we post our results online, we send them to every agency, we send them out, as, and then they're there for everybody to see. So when the state comes out and mysteriously says, oh, we lost those sample bottles that we took, or we, we didn't really see anything, it didn't look so bad, so we just made the judgment call not to take samples. We pop up and say, but here's what we found instead. And we have our aerial photos and our site photos and our test results. It just shines a mirror back in the enforcers, kind of shining a light on the problem. And folks, we are speaking with Pam Taylor, who is with Environmentally Concerned Citizens of South Central Michigan, website nocafos.org. For 20 years, this organization has been pursuing these CAFOs, has been documenting what's happening to the land, what's happening around these farms. Now, CAFOs aren't the only one despoiling the land. Are they a very clear and away first cause in terms of water pollution, land pollution? Where, what are they affecting and how badly? There are a lot of really bad things that happen about CAF- with CAFOs. The, the one that we notice the most are the emissions, hydrogen sulfite gases, ammonia particularly, are, are at dangerous levels. In fact, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this. I mentioned earlier that we set the standards for CAFO enforcement, determining um, the levels of different nutrient things that were eventually used to set the standards. We're now, um, we just purchased some equipment after years of saving up. And we're now trying to develop ambient air standards that can be used for gases coming out of CAFOs. Because when pe- people usually notice the stink, and that's ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. And we found excessive levels of hydrogen sulfide as far as a mile away. There are many chemicals. There's, there are over 200 chemicals. In, our, in my actual area, the biggest problem in the tributaries where we actually live is E. coli. We found E. coli 0157H7, which is Shigella. That's the kind that there's no cure from. You just kind of have to wait it out. Cryptosporidium, Giardia, MRSA, several kinds of antibiotic-resistant salmonella, a lot of different diseases, different viruses too, plus the nutrients. And the phosphorus is a big thing that's causing the algae blooms downstream. You mentioned that the one CAFO with, what, 3,400 3, cows, produces as much waste as a city of 68,000. I think you're in that realm. Couldn't they just set up a water treatment system like you do for a city? Couldn't that be One would think. 
It's one of the great mysteries to me is how they can take a little town of 400 people right next to this huge CAFO, and the EPA can order that little town of 400 people to set up a wastewater treatment plant that actually treats the wastewater, and they let these giant CAFOs in the same area just spread their sewage on fields, untreated. I'm not holding you responsible, Pam, but why do they do that? What, there's some disconnect that's happening, right? The disconnect is about money and power. Why do the people in Toledo have to pay to install really, really, really expensive treatment plants to, to filter a contaminant out of the water that you can't, you can't treat with chemicals, you can't boil it away, and it's extremely toxic, more toxic than botulism, more toxic than cyanide? So let me again test. If they did the, I guess, logical, sensible, it's the common sense thing that's being done with cities, if they applied the same standards, they said, you produce that much waste, you have to treat it. Would that be handling the problem, or are these diseases that are being created in this waste so enormous that even a city treatment system wouldn't be good enough? It would be good enough, but the problem then, there's two parts to the problem. One is that there's too much being produced in too small an area. So when you start talking about treatment, generally the farmers get involved and they're all for monetizing manure. They talk about digesters and they talk about separation systems. And I, I'll explain about separation systems first. It's a great idea. You separate the water from the solids and then you separate the solids into nutrient piles and you can sell the nitrogenous fertilizer and the phosphorus as fertilizer, except the problem is nobody needs it. You'd have to ship it halfway around the world. There's no shortage of either one of these anywhere. So we have too much of it. The problem with digesters is they're a great way a fabulous way to recycle methane and pay for the energy on a farm. It can pay a CAFO's energy bill. But neither one of those things treats the, provides a tertiary treatment that cleans the wastewater. And that's where the dissolved nutrients and the bacteria and the viruses and everything are. It's the wastewater that's coming off of the system. Once you talk about that, when you talk about dissolved phosphorus, you're talking about pharmaceutical-grade filtration, and it's really, really expensive to do that. So you need, to, you need to do that, and farmers just are not interested in doing either one of those things. They'll monetize the nutrients, they'll monetize the gas, but they don't want to pay for that last step. So again, it's about money and power. They're shifting the cost of their waste treatment to other people. And when you say they, you're referring to a farm. Now, a farm, with, I, I come from a dairy family. Mm -hmm. That is to say, my father grew up on the farm that my grandfather had, dairy cows. I think they had 60 at one point. They also had pigs and chickens, of course, that kind of thing. And I went out to the barn and I slopped, I, I shoveled it, and I dealt with everything there. That kind of farm is not the problem no, no, or no, is no, not no, no, a no. problem? Well, I mean, if they, any farm can be a problem if they don't handle their manure the right way. But we're not talking that kind of farm at all. Those people, their main problem is going to be storing their dry manure in a bunker or some kind of storage so that it doesn't, the pile doesn't run off in the, in the rain and things like that. That's a pretty easy problem to solve. We're talking about these huge, giant, what we would call factory farms, CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, that house thousands of animals under one roof. Confined is an actual word. The definition is actually concentrated, CAFO. What you see is these huge farms with their giant lagoons. That's where the problem is. Especially here in the western Lake Erie Basin, I talked about that tile and dissolved phosphorus, which is the problem. When you think about the phosphorus problem in, in Lake Erie, 
The conservation practices that were developed by NRCS and the United States Department of Agriculture were developed to control particulates like sediment to prevent erosion, prevent dirt from getting into the water. And people thought that that was, would stop the algae. But what they've learned is this, it's really phosphorus. That's the limiting nutrient with algae. If you can control the phosphorus, that's what they need. And it's not only all the phosphorus. If you think of a continuum, if you draw a straight line and you put the big particle phosphorus at one end and the dissolved smaller particle at the other end, it's just a teeny tiny part of that little dissolved phosphorus point at the end of that line that's causing all the problems in Lake Erie. It's the phosphorus that will pass through pharmaceutical-grade filtration. And I, I like to explain that by saying, think of a glass of sugar water. Put a couple spoonfuls of sugar in a glass of water and let it dissolve. We're talking about trying to solve this problem with grass barriers along the edge of a field, with no-till, with all kinds of things. So I'd ask you to take that glass of sugar water outside and pour it through some grass. How much sugar have you filtered out of that water? Nothing. It goes wherever the water goes. Not only that, here, the uniqueness of the Western Lake Erie Basin, because of our tiles, that manure and that dissolved phosphorus, it dissolves in the lagoon, and it goes, when it's applied on the fields, it goes right down into those tiles within minutes. It doesn't sheet off the side of a field. It just goes right straight down and out into the lake. So we don't really have anything that stops it. We don't know how to stop it. So clearly the algae bloom is one of the effects. Mm -hmm. And there are these diseases you mm -hmm. mentioned, the whole range of them. E. coli is going right down in there with the phosphorus, MRSA, antibiotic-resistant salmonella. It's all going right down there with the phosphorus. That's going into rivers and lakes. Mm -hmm. So if people are swimming in that lake mm -hmm. or that river, they're exposed to it. Mm -hmm. Does it also affect drinking water? Well, microcystin, the toxin that they have in the algae blooms, which are everywhere, yes. I mean, that can, can kills people and you can't filter it out. You can use activated charcoal or pharmaceutical-grade for filtration. And I'm talking, you know, membrane, really expensive, or really expensive activated charcoal. Boiling doesn't do it. You can't just add more, more chlorine. It's not removed. Once it gets in there, it's in there. So has it had its effect already? I mean, you, you're documenting that the pollution is there. What effects do you actually see in terms of public health? Toledo had to upgrade its waste, spent millions and millions of dollars to upgrade its water treatment, drinking water plant. Other cities are going to have to do that. We're finding microcystin now. You talked about changes in weather earlier, farther upstream in the, in the tributaries. I was told by a scientist that I asked, you know, have you looked at where this is coming from? Are, is microcystin seeding happening in Lake Erie? Is it coming from somewhere else? Because I was always led to believe that it just sprouts in the open water and in the lake in a body of water. And, and I was told, well, it's a problem in open water. And I said, but have you ever checked streams? So we did a test in the tributary streams in Michigan. And at seven sites, cyanobacteria was present in all sites. That's the toxic algae. The actual toxin was present in three sites, and cattle DNA was present in all sites. So it's coming from way upstream. So again, the question I asked you was, what public health effects have there been? I think in Flint, Michigan, with the lead in the water and the issues with their poor, poor quality, they could point to health effects that were happening in individuals, that the rates of this illness are... 
people getting sick from E. coli, yeah. the microcystin people getting sick from the microcystin, dogs, dogs, pets getting sick. These are all documented, pretty well documented impacts of contaminated water when you have a well that's contaminated with E. coli. Many of our drinking water systems in southeastern Michigan, the municipal systems, are, pull their water from the raisin. When you have live cryptosporidium in your water, you don't, that isn't killed by normal treatment. And you, you don't put chlorine, you know, you have to use extra measures to get rid of that. Otherwise, people do get sick. There was an incident in Walkerton, Ontario. There was an incident in, in Milwaukee where people got sick. We don't see it much because we have clay soil, but in areas where there's uh, sandier soil, groundwater contamination is a horrible problem. That's a problem in the Kiwani area, I know, and in the central sands area of Wisconsin. Depending on where you live, you just can't have that much sewage. I mean, living around that much sewage, drinking it, breathing, breathing the contaminants is a, is a huge health problem. So it does show up in the rates of each of those diseases in an area. Does that mean places where they don't have CAFOs, they're healthier? Oh, definitely. There was just a lawsuit in North Carolina about emissions from a hog CAFO, and the jury found in favor of the residents. It was kind of unusual because there really aren't many regulations that cover air quality around livestock farms. But when you, when you break the components down, if you were in this room and hydrogen sulfide reached a certain level, you'd get really sick, you'd die, and there are air quality standards. There really aren't for ambient air, and that continues to be a problem, so that's something that we need to work on. It sounds pretty depressing. Obviously, you've got a passion for it. I think you retired from teaching, mm -hmm. and then what you did is start going around and measure and track and accumulate all the data related to this. Why? You know, people, people do ask me this, and when I step back and think about that question, I think, you know, that, that question does make a lot of sense, even though it just seems so obvious to me. My people have been there since 1837. We're not going anywhere. I'm related to a lot of these people. This is my family. These are my friends. I am doing my best to help them. I, I just can't see why anybody would do anything different. I know these people who call me and they say, Pam, there's a problem here. Would you come and check it out? I know those people. And why, why would you not help them? It just seems so natural. I'm sure it seems obvious to you, Pam. And we are speaking with Pam Taylor today for Spirit in Action. She's working with a group called Environmentally Concerned Citizens South Central Michigan. And their website, nocafos.org. CAFO, C-A-F-O, nocafos.org. And I have her here today for Spirit in Action because of the world healing work that she's trying to lead, that she is leading, that, that she's implementing for her neighbors. You are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. We've got 13 years of interviews with people doing healing work for the world, as well as our Song of the Soul program, which captures that intersection between music and spirit. Also on our site, you'll find links. So if you really have difficulty spelling nocafos.org, you'll get there via our site. And to all of our other guests, there's comment area. Please do help us know what you're thinking by posting comment when you come. There's a donate button, full-time work, and we're supported only by your donations, not by government, not by corporations. 
And finally, I want to point out that you really need to support your local community radio stations. Alternative media is so important. A lot of people rely heavily on public radio for a bit of alternative, but even them, even public radio has their limitations because they can't just be the voice of the public. They're governmentally regulated as well. Community radio stations have some regulation, but it is volunteers from the community making these things happen. So please start by supporting them with both your hands and your wallets. Again, we're speaking with Pam Taylor, and she's been doing this work for so long now that I think you must be the preeminent expert in the area. Is that true? Or I mean, you you don't actually have a degree that says you're a microbiologist or yeah. anything. I would not say. I would say that my mentor, Lynn Henning, is probably the preeminent expert. She is part of a member of our group, and she was basically the leader of all this. She won the Goldman Prize for North America in 2010, which is the Environmental World's Nobel Prize. And she has she works on a national basis now. I don't think of really, I think of our group as experts. I don't think of any one person. We all kind of share the duties. I happen to be more, be the data person. So I got elected to work on Lake Erie stuff, <laughs> put things together. But everybody is equally strong and, and has equal, it's an equal partnership as far as I'm concerned. Anybody could step in and do anything, any of the other jobs. You know, I think it's really important to, when we think about it, it, lifestyle, I guess what I was going to say is lifestyle is really important to us. One of our members 25 years ago broke the tile, the drain tile that I talked about, on 20 acres of her farm and has nursed it back to its natural condition. It's in Rolling Hills. She's got seven ponds, natural trees, stream flows through it, and she knows the name of every single snail Every single clam, every single butterfly, every single tiny plant that grows on that property. I have another friend who grows organic fruits and vegetables and flowers, sells them at the Anarvers Farmer's Market. That's how they make their living. I have another friend who everything she, well, Lynn, everything they eat comes from her garden. She spends a lot of time canning and freezing for her, her family, she and her husband, and her son and daughter and their families. And we all do something. I think I told you when we first talked that I grew up in a Wendell Berry world of very diversified farming. We all try to stay very true to that. So we try to live um, not using more than we need. And we try to be very, very aware of our surroundings. Earlier today, when I spoke to another group, I mentioned they were asking me what they could do. And I would like to just throw this out there for people to think about. We love things that we can name. That's the first step in affection, knowing something's name. You've probably heard that saying before. Maybe not. But the next time you're driving over a teeny tiny little stream that you think just is a nothing, find out the name of it. Find out where it goes, where it ends. What kind of things does it go past? What's the environment like? What's in it? What does it look like in spring, fall, during all the seasons? What kind of crops grow there? You'd be surprised once you start taking that view and, and that you widen that out a little bit. What's the name of those trees? And think back on the people who used to live there who knew all those things just intrinsically. And from that, the, from knowing that knowledge, all their food production was based on all of that, the way they used the land. Water pollution happens because of improper land use. And once you start understanding how things work together, that's the first step in being able to stop it. You know, when you said earlier that uh, your friend knows 
every snail, the name of every snail. And I was thinking, what? She's starting to name snails? Uh, you know, like this one's George, that one's oh, no, no, Fred. No, no. I, I know you're referring to species or, or, or whatever. I realized that The name that of every species. Moment. I should have been more clear about that. Yeah, she knows the name of the species, every single invertebrate, every fish, every plant, every tree, everything that grows there. Where I was going, though, was I think my grandfather knew every cow, not just by a number, oh, not just names. by a tag on the ear. He knew every cow and he knew each one's disposition. And I think when you have a CAFO with 3,400 cows, there's no way you know the cows. They're best numbers. And that lack of knowledge, my, my friend Sam Thayer says, and he's, he's a wild foods expert, he says, we care about that which we know. Which is what you exactly were just talking about. Exactly what I was about. talking about. Right. And since people in a CAFO, the owners, the workers, it is an automation plant, right? You're just sending It's a things. factory. Yes. It's, so you don't actually know the individuals, the cows, the uh, other creatures. Because it's such a big system, you don't even see the working parts beyond, here, I've fed the cows now. No, and you don't know what's out of alignment. I mean, for my grandfather, he could only feed what he could grow, and he had to make sure he had livestock. To you know, he had to make sure some there was some use for his what he could produce, and then he had the weather to contend with, and and all the other things. So he thought a lot much more about it. It was just a a better managed system, and he knew he couldn't use it up. He he couldn't go buy more land, and. I think as we have surrendered that, I think that's the root of the problem, surrendering that knowledge to others. In our pursuit of comfort and convenience, we've just kind of abdicated that responsibility. And I think in a, in, at the heart of the problem is that. Now, we could talk about the Farm Bill and how it promotes really bad things. We could talk about corporate agriculture, and, and we could find demons everywhere. But the system... Fundamentally, we have the system that we created. And until people change their hearts and the way they look at things, I don't think much is going to change. I think there's hope. I work with kids, young kids a lot, younger adults, and they see. I just hope that we don't provide too many obstacles for them to make the changes that they want to make. Well, then I want to come back again, Pam, to what effects your work has actually had. You've collected an immense amount of data. You've documented it. You've stopped some CAFOs. Have you changed hearts and minds? Yes, yes. How many? <laughs> Since you're a data person, I mean. How would you ever know that? I mean, how would you ever know that? We went from being, I mean, I mean, we're invited to speak. People seek us out when we first started. You know, Gandhi had, had kind of a way of looking at this. Hey, I don't know if you've ever heard this. First they ignore you, then they make fun of you, then they fight you, then you win. And we have been through, we're starting to win some of the battles. There was a 10-year fight to get an actual CAFO permit in Michigan. It was a lawsuit-based thing. We were integral in providing the data for that, and we won. I've been working closely with a group in Toledo that has filed a lawsuit to have Lake Erie declared impaired against Lake Erie. They won. There's more work going on there. Um, we've been able to concretely, in the small view, which is really much more important to me, we've been able to get regulations enforced to say 
okay, farm, you must stop doing this right now because you are hurting your neighbor down the street. And to me, that's the most important thing. We do those 4,700 violations, getting farms to change what they were doing at that moment. So 4,700 times we did that. That means 4,700 times there was less pollution bothering somebody. Big picture, we work on the farm bill. We're part of the Less is More Coalition. We we did the Follow the Manure Report. We did the Watershed Moment Report. People had told us there's no way to know how many capos there are in Michigan and Ohio, and you, we don't know where they're located in what watershed because it's impossible to map the watershed, and we don't know how much manure is produced in each watershed, and you can't know that. And we did it in both cases, and it changed. it's changed everything. Manure was ignored as a source of Lake Erie's pollution, and I actually think it's closer to responsible for closer to 50% of the phosphorus than what they're saying, than what they tried to say earlier. And people are acknowledging that. We've managed to get rules changed. Have we made them go away? The only thing that's going to make them go away is for public demand to change. And and while they're while they're subsidized, while cheap food comes from that kind of production, that's not going to change. Yeah, while cheap food comes from that production, of course, people look for the lowest price frequently. My wife and I don't, in general, because we either buy sustainably grown or organically grown or harvested. I mean, we have our own chickens, so we have our own eggs, right? We we know how they're treated, and we know what's going on with them. Not everybody can do that. And so I don't think you're actually advocating away from that. What kind of price difference are we actually talking about if we went away from factory farms back to the traditional farm So one of, one of the members of our Less Equals More Coalition, Dr. Catherine Badgley at University of Michigan, did a study, and she found that if the subsidies were not in play, if the corn subsidies, soybean subsidies weren't there, all the equipment storage, manure lagoon, dairy subsidies weren't there, and for other species too, if everything was level, pasture-based livestock wouldn't be any, and products wouldn't be any more expensive. The subsidies are what's propping everything up because these smaller farms don't qualify. The smaller farms don't qualify for any of, of the subsidy money. You can't, if you are a pasture-based farmer, you don't get qualify for subsidies. More than a little bit crazy, uh, what we have to deal with. I am hopeful that you've had an effect. Now, you said you were the first such organization, that is to say environmentally concerned citizens of South Central Michigan and your work with it, Pam Taylor, that you were the first such organization. Are there a number of them now? How many? Now, there are organizations all over the place now. There's a great, um, Lynn Lynn Henning, our Lynn Henning has gone on to work for an organization called the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. And what they do is they they use our model. And they they are an incubator for little groups all over the country that are getting set up. They set up Kiwani Cares. There's a group in the Central Sands of Wisconsin there are groups all over in, in every almost every state now, and they are experts. They have a little template, how to get organized, what to do, and we're seeing a lot of that. Unfortunately, the new Farm Bill does not hold a lot of promise. I have faith that people speaking out can make a change, though. If enough people would just stand up and say, we don't want to do this anymore, it would stop right away. But to get people to speak out and say, I don't want my subsidy money to go for that, to get people to... Your dollar is your biggest vote to spend money, talk to people who grow, who raise your food, see how they do it, make sure your money goes directly to them. That's the best thing you can do. So your organization 
to what degree are they doing, are they working in all of those directions? Lots. That is to say. Lots. <laughs> so you're bailiwick within the organization. You're the data person, right? And you speak so cogently. You've got numbers Years in your Years of head. teaching. <laughs> I taught math. Well, I've taught math too. <laughs> I taught physics, but that doesn't mean I remember all the data as conversely as you do. Uh, day in, day out, do you get days off? I mean, I'm trying to understand how immersed you are in this. Well, you know, I tell people I spend about 40 hours a week on this. And that sounds just like, this sounds like this horrific, like I'm an obsessed kind of person. But I live in a rural area, and these people are my friends. So that's the social circle that I operate in anyway. And my, you know, the farmers are talking about this. I have, I have fr- friends on all sides of the issue. I have family members who are just, who think I'm just the most horrible person on earth right now. We don't talk about it at family gatherings. But I see, what I see, especially see is the commercial fertilizer users, farmers who aren't, don't, who don't have to dispose of all that manure, and that isn't their main consideration. They have, they're very concerned about Lake Erie. They've stopped using the commercial fertilizer. It's, there's too much. Great. I don't have to pay for it. They've done all kinds of things. To They've taken land out of production. But the, the difference is they don't have all that manure to dispose of, so they don't need to create situations where they can apply it. And so you see lots of discussions. I just had a discussion with a farmer over the weekend who didn't know, didn't realize I was me. <laughs> and was telling me how he switched from commodities, soybeans and corn, and he's got 75 acres of vegetables now. And I asked him about it. I said, great, you know, that's what we used to grow around here. We didn't see that much corn, that, that much beans. And he said, well, it's, the money's there. And he said, if I have a bad year weather-wise or if, I get, if we have, get wiped out, he said, it's going to be a big hit. But the money's there. He said, most farmers won't take the risk and they want the security of the, ta- the taxpayer money. So I thought that was quite an interesting, he, he totally understood, he totally understands the problem. Most of what I know I learned from farmers, talking to farmers. But when you said he didn't know that you were you, he, he was, didn't he know was he was a speaking friend to of, the enemy? He was a friend of a friend, and when we were introduced, my name was never said. So he may have still talked to me, he may not. He was a visitor, he was from another area of, I mean, not close to, he was visiting a relative for the weekend, and so. Is the potentiality that he would have thought of you as an enemy and not communicated? He might have been way? afraid to talk to me. Because he had different ideas or because he was afraid? Scared. He, scared of what? Well, there, you know, they, we tend to be demonized um, or anti-farm or these radical people, and, and that, that's not the truth. We are one of them. I'm not vegan or vegetarian. I use dairy products. I eat meat. I don't want to see anybody go out of business. What I want them to do is stop polluting, change their ways. You mentioned early about the Wendell Berry point of view. You're a Wendell Berry agrarian. And I want to say just a couple moments, a couple things about that before we end. When I called you up and invited you for this Norton Spirit Radio interview to be part of Spirit in Action, we talked about Wendell Berry. And we both had read Jaber Crow. Favorite book. Obviously, I remember the name because it was so affecting to me. What was it about Wendell Berry's book, Jaber Crow, that was so important to you? I grew up in Port William. In effect. In effect. Figuratively speaking, I can almost point out every character in that book, and they were either related to me or a neighbor. 
I was a church organist. If you remember, there's a passage, two passages in that book. Remember, if you've read the book, any Jaber Crow fans here? Remember when he gets the job being the church custodian and he falls asleep on the pew in the back and he has this dream about everybody who's ever been in that church and will be? Do you remember that? And, and I also, my farm is next to a cemetery. He also gets the job digging the graves. And later on in that book, he talks about remembering that day in the, in the church where he sees in his mind all the people that have ever been and ever will be that have sat in the, that church. And later on, he's at the cemetery and he sees them all again. Do you remember that section where he's digging all their graves? My, that's my family. I know I have, they have a cemetery where people who came here in the early, who were born in the 1700s and passed away are buried. My, my mother used to tell me that if I had been born a male, I would be Jaber Crow because she liked the book too. <laughs> well, that sounds like the highest praise that they could give a person, a person of deep integrity. That's, that's the main thing I carried away from that. So, someone so rooted that could not think of people, animals, land as disposable and it's clear in your work pam that you thank you do not see them as disposable you're they're part of the family right we were put here to be stewards and i think that that is what we have to answer for and if we abdicate that responsibility in the name of convenience and comfort i think that's a, a, a huge mistake on our part we don't trust people who do that to us in personal relationships why would we do it to the rest of the world Well, again, folks, we've been speaking with Pam Taylor with Environmentally Concerned Citizens of South Central Michigan. I've got a couple links on my website that you'll want to go and check out. Uh, The main organization website is nocafos.org. That is N-O-C-A-F-O-S dot org. But it's really a lot easier just to spell org and go to our site, and you'll find the link to Pam Taylor and the other great work that they're doing in in this organization, inspiring the rest of the nation, coming right from the heartland. What a wonderful way to do it. Thank you so much, Pam. You're very welcome, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here. It's been an honor. And again, folks, the links for Pam Taylor and the organizations on the website, you'll find them there, as well as a lot of other good folks. Please go to the nordenspiritradio.org, check that out, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. <laughs>